Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, We are reading Mark's gospel together, and this morning we're going to look at what happens when Jesus tells the disciples a second time that he is going to Jerusalem to be killed. So let me read from Mark 9, verses 30 through 37 for us. You can follow along uh, where it's printed in the order of worship or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Mark 9. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, this this word that we have just read together... Every bit of it is true. And we just sang, as your people, these ancient words, this word from the psalm, that you would come and teach us to love your truth. And so we just ask that that would be true, that you would meet us in the places where we are, Um, those of us who feel really close to you, those of us who feel far from you, those of us who aren't sure how we feel, those of us who are here this morning and we're not, we don't even know why, would you meet every one of us where we are and teach us to love this truth that we have read and heard together. Use this word to point us to the word incarnate. Show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it. And we pray that in his name. Amen. Well, back in uh, February, I had to make a short trip to Philadelphia with uh, another pastor from our presbytery to do some work for our presbytery. And we finished our work, and we had about uh, a half a day before our flights back to Chicago, so we made our way to the Old City District in Philly. And while we were there, uh, we saw the Liberty Bell, we saw Independence Hall, we saw Ben Franklin's uh, home or the place where his home used to be, all that kind of stuff. And, of course, uh, we decided to hunt down and to eat a good cheesesteak while we were there because when in Rome, right? So we found a cheesesteak place. We ordered. We sat down to eat. And a few minutes in, a guy came up to us with his phone out. And he greeted me by calling me Myron Mixon. Uh, I've mentioned once before in a sermon that from time to time I get mistaken for this guy named Myron Mixon. Uh, I don't know if you know who he is. I'm guessing you don't. 
but he's this competition barbecue pit master who appears on TV all of the time and actually has just opened a barbecue restaurant here in Chicago. Well, this guy was convinced I was Myron, and he had his phone out with proof of my identity. And as I was trying to convince him that I wasn't Myron, another guy walked up to us, and this guy was the owner of the cheesesteak place. And I'm pretty sure this first guy had tipped him off because this guy looked right past the first guy, looked right past my friend, walked up to me with his hand extended for a handshake, and he said in this incredibly respectful, incredibly deferential tone, Hello, Myron. I hope you like the food. It was clear to me in that moment that Myron Mixon's presence in this guy's shop would have been a pretty big deal, and he was going to work that moment in whatever way he could to his advantage. Um, Thinking back, which I have done dozens of times since that day, what I should have said was, well, I do like what I'm eating, but to be totally sure, I'm going to have to try several other things. (laughs) But I didn't. I told him that I wasn't Myron, and when he realized I was just some guy from Chicago, he scooted away just as quick as he had appeared. Now, with the exception of being mistaken for a a D-level celebrity, this kind of thing is just about the most ordinary, everyday thing that we can imagine. Honestly, I don't expect this cheesesteak guy to fawn over every customer who walks into his place, but it was a telling feeling to be treated like chopped liver when he realized I wasn't who he thought he was. I was. And we see this kind of thing, and if we have the courage to be honest, we do this kind of thing almost every day of our lives. We draw near to people, and we come close to people that we think might benefit us in some way. We suck up and we show deference to the people that we perceive are powerful or who are attached to fame or who could give us influence in the circles that we run in. When we meet new people, one of our first reactions is often to subconsciously assert ourselves or protect ourselves by placing that person that we have just met in some kind of hidden pecking order. What is their status in my life? And church, this is part of what it means to be a fallen human. This is part of our sinfulness. We often fail to love and we often fail to serve with open hands. We fail to love and serve with impartiality. Another way of saying it is we look out for ourselves. And that looking out for ourselves exposes a fundamental insecurity in us. And Jesus' teaching in the story that we just read together strikes at the heart of that way of living. Not only to expose it in our lives, but to disarm it in our lives and to heal it in our lives, to heal us. And so Jesus' teaching is for all of us here this morning. So Mark says that Jesus and the disciples were passing through Galilee, and that's a subtle reminder that this part of Mark's story 
is a road narrative. It is a journey. Jesus is slowly and circuitously making his way towards Jerusalem, which is the city of his destiny. We know it's the city of his destiny because he has told the disciples. So they're making their way to Jerusalem. And as we've seen a couple times already in Mark's gospel, Jesus doesn't want anyone else to know exactly where they are because he wants to be alone with the 12 because he wants to say something to them that is not for the larger crowds to hear in that moment. So it's just Jesus, and it's just the twelve, and they're walking along, and he says to them, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So this is now the second time, the second time since Peter admitted to Jesus that they knew who he really was. This is the second time that Jesus has told them what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And it's really important for us to remember how this story is working, the big story of Mark. Peter had stood in for all of them, and he had told Jesus, we know that you are the Christ. He said, Jesus, look, we know, we know you are the final son of David. We know that you are the true king whose rule is going to overthrow our enemies, whose rule is going to spread the rich, restorative, healing justice of God over the whole world. We know that you are the Messiah. You're not just saying that there's good news coming down the road. You are the good news. And as far as the disciples were concerned, that meant that the revolution had begun. And they didn't just have front row seats to the revolution. They were part of the show. So after they confessed that they knew who he was, Jesus immediately tells them he's going to (laughs) die. Pastor Dave walked us through that part of the story four weeks ago, so I won't go into all the details here, only just to remind you that Peter loses his mind when Jesus says this. He takes him aside, and he actually rebukes Jesus. Messiahs, don't get killed, Jesus. Are you kidding me? Well, Jesus has an answer for old Peter. He takes an opportunity at that point to teach them what following him is really going to look like. So now here we are. The second time Jesus tells them he's going to be killed, and Mark is about as blunt as he possibly can be. They did not understand the saying. They didn't understand. So it is the second time that Jesus has said he's going to be killed. It is the second time that the disciples completely misunderstand what he means. It is the second time that he begins to teach them what it means to really follow him. If you see a pattern emerging, you're on to something. We'll get to that. But they don't understand what Jesus means. And I have to tell you that this makes all of the sense in the world to me. Of course they didn't understand. I mean, in the first century, not even all of God's people thought that a Messiah would be coming. Not every one of them expected it. And those that did expect it, would never have imagined that he would have been killed. It would have been preposterous. It would have been nonsensical to them to imagine that the Messiah would be killed. It's like saying that a sprinter is going to run her next race with her legs tied together or a center fielder is going to play blindfolded. It just doesn't make sense. So the disciples' confusion at Jesus' teaching makes sense. But here's what doesn't. 
they were afraid to ask him about it. Why? You know, why didn't they just say, hey, Jesus, what does this mean? We're confused about you saying now again that you're going to die. Why don't you tell us what that means, really? That's the weird part of this, and this is where Mark is taking us. That's right where Mark goes next into the heart of that question, why didn't they ask? So fast forward to the end of that journey that evening. They get to Capernaum, and they're alone in a house or with a bunch of other people maybe in the house, but mostly it's just Jesus and the Twelve. And he, and he asked them, what were you guys talking about on the way? Apparently the silence uh, after Jesus said that he was going to die, eventually it gets filled with some chatter, whispers probably, nothing too loud. We don't want Jesus to hear us talking about this because you know how he is. So they can't tell him what they were talking about. Jesus' question is met with more silence and it becomes immediately clear that his question to them was a big setup because of course he knows what, what they were talking about. It turns out that as they were walking along the way to Capernaum, they were talking about which one of them was the greatest. (laughs) And I think this is the answer to our question. The disciples did not ask Jesus about being killed because honestly, they didn't want to hear about it. It messed with their dreams. I mean, if Jesus is the true king, that meant that they were going to be rulers right there along with Jesus. That meant power for them. That meant glory for them. That meant prestige for them. That meant religious honor for them. They were hanging out with the king, and that meant nothing but roses for them. And all this talk of dying doesn't fit into the plan, so of course, they don't want to get to the bottom of it. And before people like us shake our heads at the disciples again, it's worth stopping for a minute to ask if we don't find ourselves in that same spot from time to time. That spot being Jesus is speaking to me, but I'm not trying to hear him right now because it messes with my dreams. It messes with my idea of how life should go. For instance, there may be some of us here this morning who need to forgive someone. Yes, we have been wronged, and yes, it hurt, and yes, it absolutely cost us something. And maybe we live with the effect of being wronged every single day of our lives, but we have chosen not to forgive We do this kind of stuff all the time. We choose not to forgive because it feels good to hang on to our anger because it gives us a broken, twisted parody of comfort. We tell ourselves things like our anger gives us an edge or that forgiveness will actually make life too messy or it just plain feels good to us to be right and to have everyone know we're right and we don't want forgiveness to burst that sick bubble. But church, the problem is Jesus doesn't mumble about forgiveness. 
His teaching is clear and his teaching is plain. He spoke a bunch of parables about, on the one hand, the horror show that our life turns into when we don't forgive. And on the other hand, the joy, the unbridled freedom and happiness and joy that offering forgiveness brings to us. He taught us to pray and smack in the middle of this prayer he taught us to pray. He said, say this, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. But do we stick our fingers in our ears and not listen to this kind of stuff from Jesus because it messes with our dreams? (laughs) Or maybe there are some of us here this morning who do that with what Jesus teaches us about our sex lives or about what we're supposed to do with our money, about how we should care for the poor, or how we should love our enemies, or how we're supposed to deal with anxiety, or how we live in constant judgment of others. Jesus didn't mumble about any of those things either. His teaching was clear and plain. But do we drown those bits out? Do I drown those bits out? because they threaten my idea of how my life should go. Well, to people like you and me, (laughs) Jesus is always graciously coming up beside us and slyly asking, hey, what were you talking about on the way here? Because he knows and he wants to engage us in it, to expose it, to disarm it, to heal us. And so part of growing up as a follower of Jesus is listening to him and letting him do that work in us. That's exactly where Jesus is going with the 12. Mark says that he calls all of these dreaming would-be princes to listen to him. Sit down and listen for a spell. He's going to work with what he's got. If these guys want to be great then Jesus will tell them the only way to be great. It upends everything that they and we think we know about human greatness. This is what Jesus says. If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. As we sometimes like to say it, the way up is down. End this struggle for dominance in whatever circle you find yourself in. Open your hands and gladly make your way to the very bottom of the pecking order. Make yourself small and give yourself for the good of others. That's greatness. This is a call not to be served but to serve. And then Jesus looks around and there's this child in the house that he's in. A small boy, maybe even a baby, probably a baby, small enough to fit in Jesus' arms. And he takes this child in his arms and he's looking at his friends and this is what he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And the one who receives me doesn't even receive me. He receives the one who sent me. So what does Jesus mean? Well, first, we need to understand that 
there's this part of the ancient world that is very unlike our world, and that is that in the first century, children were not viewed with much regard at all. I mean, certainly families had affection for their children, right? Grandmas and grandpas and moms and dads and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, they had affection for their children, but outside of a family, in society at large, and even from the viewpoint of other families, children were normally the last category of humans to be considered. There were no romantic notions about children like we harbor in our heads, that they're innocent, that they're pure. They just, in the first century, were. And I got to tell you, as I read about this this week, I was surprised by this bewildering variety of adjectives that writers use to describe the way children were viewed in the first century. Insignificant, powerless, vulnerable, subject, needy, socially invisible, ignored, dominated, little esteemed, non-productive, helpless, dependent, burden. And so it's no surprise at all (laughs) that in order to make his teaching as clear as he possibly can, that he chooses a child. Not simply as an illustration, but as a prime example of precisely who should be served. This person who has nothing to offer you in the way of power, this person who has nothing to offer you in the way of status, this this person whose association with you will mean a big fat zero to your bottom line, this person who costs you a lot, whose care requires vigilance, whose care requires bottomless sacrifice and giving of yourself, this person who does not even know that you are doing these things for them, this person for whom the world has no regard, serve them. Receive them. Show hospitality to them. That's greatness. And it's worth reminding us one more time that Jesus isn't just holding this little baby as an example, as an illustration. He is saying this means serve this one. Jesus did this occasionally. He would mark out categories of people, the last and the least, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the prisoner. Serve them. Receive them. Show hospitality to them. That is greatness. The antidote to that fundamental fallen insecurity that makes us assert ourselves, that makes us protect ourselves, that makes us suck up, that makes us ingratiate and put people into some kind of weird pecking order, The antidote is to turn away from all of that with the open hands of repentance and faith and do precisely the opposite. (laughs) And Jesus makes it clear. To live and love that way is to live and love as we have been created to live and love. It is the life that we have been made for. 
Jesus so identified with the last, he so identified with the least, that he said to his disciples, if you receive them, you receive me. And it's not even really me that you receive, you receive the one who sent me. To do this, to live and to love this way, is to share in the very life of God himself. That is greatness. And so church, we don't do this alone. And we don't do this in our own power. If we follow Jesus by faith, here's what it means. It means we are united to the one who did not just teach us this. He embodied it for us and for our healing. He did not consider being equal with God even something to hang on to. He made himself nothing, the least of all. He made himself the last of all. He humbled himself. And just like he told the disciples it was going to happen on that day, he died for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, for our healing. And precisely because that's true, you and I can be certain that he has given us everything that we need, everything that we need to live and love like he did. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to love this truth. <laughs> this truth about the world that you have made that runs against the grain of pretty much everything that we know and practice. <laughs> help us to love it. And by your Holy Spirit, I ask that you would change us in all of the places that we need changed, in all of the ways that we need changed, as individuals, as families, as a church. Change us into a people who are growing more and more in our apprehension of the least among us and in our service and reception of the least among us. Father, do this for our good so that we can live the life that you have made us for and do this for the good of this broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.